0: Go here. We are with episode number forty-seven of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host Eric Degati, along with my uh, friend and co-host Mike Perry, who is up in Boston. Uh, how are things up there?
1: It's a beautiful day in Boston. Uh, it's you know, it's 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 like uh, every day's an adventure here in Boston, especially when it comes to the weather. Uh, one day it's you know a frost, and then the next day it's hundred and five degrees, and we have a drought. So. Uh, that's pretty much how Boston works. But no, no, we're doing good here. We, uh, we can't complain. Just, just chipping away at it, buddy. You know, another day.
0: Well, we're we're currently dealing with smoke from wildfires coming down from Canada, and we can partly blame our guest here, who's from Canada. Sorry um, about that. I didn't start any. <laughs> I didn't start any. I promise. Um, so we we are honored to have Doctor Mark Bubbs, and uh, he's a performance nutritionist, naturopathic doctor, and author of the best-selling new book, uh, Peak. Not really that new. I came across, that's how I came across Dr. <laughs> Bob's cool. work, but um tremendous, tremendous work. And, and that's why I wanted to dive in and ask him a bunch of questions on stuff like this. Um, He currently serves as the perfic- uh, performance nutrition lead for uh, Canadian men's basketball, uh, as well as working with the Pittsburgh Penguins and uh, a huge portfolio of elite pro athletes all over the world. He speaks at corporate and, and co- uh, conferences all over the world as well. Uh, he also has his own podcast, Performance mm-hmm. Nutrition Podcast. Um, and so we're honored to have him with you. So, so thank you for joining us, Mark. I appreciate the time, guys. Glad we can make it happen. Absolutely. So um, you kind of have an interesting and, and diverse background, having qualifications ranging from the naturopathic medicine to nutrition to strength and conditioning. So kind of explain how you have that, that triple threat and how those disciplines intersect and as well as your, your concept of the expert generalist, which I love.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess when you've been at this a while, like in the late '90s, when I was finishing my university degree and thinking of going into medicine, I was really interested in nutrition, right? I'm interested in training, nutrition, and as you asked around in terms of, you know, shadow doctors and and talk about the curriculum, there was no emphasis on on food or nutrition in terms of of medicine and exercise, even around. Amazing to see today, we see all these docs on on social media talking about muscle and how muscles impacts all these systems of the body. I mean, 20 plus years ago, this was not uh, the common belief, right? Nobody had time for that. And so in Canada, there was a degree you could get, which is a postgraduate degree called a naturopathic doctor. You could, you know, run lab tests, which back then you had to have, you know, access to be able to run on like today, prescribe medications and, you know, you had a better understanding of you know the, the body as a whole so that's that took me down that path and I'd always worked as a strength coach along the way I was working at the uh, Pollock and Performance Center as I was going through naturopathic school so all the nutrition questions that would come up with with athletes and back then this is like the the mid-Os, you know you, the, the gut issues or whether it was dairy is it really gluten all these types of things were coming up with athletes and so you know I really took that framework of being able to see things from more of a practitioner side and then just started applying
0: it with athletes and uh you know it's been a fun ride ever since awesome so um i got a bunch of topics that we want to cover with you so i want to start off with recovery because that's kind of become in fashion in the last few years and uh, you know for good reason but however it seems that most people what they're thinking about recovery is is basically you know uh massage guns and ice bats um in your book you talk about penfolds recovery pyramid and the foundation being nutrition and then you know sleep and stress and then um, let's talk about some of the entry-level ways you suggest we we not only address these big three, but also monitor them as well.
2: Yeah, recovery is a big one, not just for the athletes. I've got three little kids at home, so you definitely, once you have little people at home and you're, or your long hours at of the office or both, right, where sleep, stress is high, you start to realize this recovery piece is pretty important. And I'm sure you guys see, obviously, younger athletes. We're trying to influence their behaviors and sort of what they do because they can get away with a lot of things whether it's training or nutrition or even on the recovery side Um, but I think that's you know when I was writing peak 2017-ish 2017 2018 you know that concept of of sleep and nutrition and really getting the training right and, and even mental emotional stress this was you know something that was becoming more and more accepted let's say or more staffs were interested in because you start to realize you only have your athletes for so many hours of the day there's 20 other hours of the day what are they doing what is the stress load at university or the um, again mental emotional load at home and so I think that's where getting back to some of those big rocks really helps and you know fast forward to today I think it's great that athletes know a lot about sleep but if we look at some of the data we're still struggling on the execution side right like we know we should get more but still actually being able to to apply that still a challenge. And so, you know, just like with training, you got to always circle back to those fundamentals. And even as coaches, we revisit, Hey, actually, I'm going to bed at midnight the last month and a half. I wonder why I'm more fatigued. Um, So that would be on that kind of sleep front. And then for my end on nutrition, I think recovery, nutrition plays a big role. And I think the energy demands of certain sports are really high. And if we deal with a lot of younger athletes, you know, if you're listening to this and you're working with high school uh, collegiate athletes, right, they're still growing. And so that growth and maturation requires energy as well. And so it's not easy to fit all that energy into a day because especially student athletes are busy at classes and everything else. And so, you know, that recovery piece, if we're if we're not sleeping enough and then we're under fueling, we really start to put ourselves at risk of injury. And I think that's where um, particularly if the S&C coaches have a nice role to play because they're the ones who are often seeing the athlete the most. And so a lot of that downtime between sets, a lot of that relationship that you're building, sort of the, you know, you're a gateway really to be able to layer in some of these changes or even to check up and say, you know, to figure out are
0: they getting asleep or are they making the changes on the
2: nutrition front, those types of things.
0: So before you know, Mike jumps oh, okay, in, but... um, the one thing I want to do is kind of going back to that that concept of that expert generalist of being enough to be that strength coach that appreciates all of this. Um, unfortunately, I, I think you kind of alluded to this is that we put some of these things in these silos and that we look at sleep as its own thing and nutrition as its own thing, but not Understanding that, well, you, you're, you may have slept crappy because of your nutrition. And I, I think some of the benefits of, of some of the things like the wearables now is it creates some of that awareness, especially like you mentioned collegiate and even the pro athletes that we work with to say, well, I didn't realize, wow, that, that extra drink I had last night, that killed my sleep score. Um, and, and what I'm finding there. So talk a little bit about monitoring and connecting the dots of all those big rocks so we can get a better appreciation and, and better awareness uh, for the people that we're working with.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's amazing all the different tools we have now, again, going back 20, 25 years, we sort of, there's a lot more uh, using our eyes and our ears and, and the coaching piece which is still equally as important today, but we've got a lot of other tools that we can use. And as you mentioned, things around sleep monitoring, um, you know, depending on the individual, I think this is where we've got to really think about the context and how we want to apply that tool, right? And so for some athletes, whether they're high school, college, or even the pros, it might even just be using that device for a month or a couple of weeks to make some of the, you know, to glean some of the insights that you just mentioned, which is oh, wow, I have a bag of Oreos at one in the morning. My blood sugar levels go through the roof. I sleep really crappy. Now, that may seem a little obvious, but sometimes having that, being able to see that data. And, you know, we did some work at Canada Basketball with continuous glucose monitors around 2017, 2018. And, you know, that was one of the insights that one of our players had of just this later eating was having on just seeing that really dramatic rise and the impact it had on sleep. And so that's a nice way to to be able to introduce... Or get get the athlete's attention, right? Because that's a difficult thing, isn't it? Of as practitioners, we'll have our list of what's important, and the athletes got a lot of people that they need to talking to them. They got coaches, they got s c they got others, um, well, nutrition therapy, etc. And so, you know, trying to get their attention to say, "Hey, this this piece is important." I think that's where the different technologies, whether it's you know sleep monitor, you know CGM, you don't have to always go to that level of sort of technology it could even come with just a simple questionnaire it could just be a question from the coach of hey yeah you know, when you wake up in the morning how do you feel you know if the alarm doesn't go off would you sleep another hour because if they, they would sleep another hour then they're probably not getting enough sleep or enough quality sleep and those are going to be you know two of the three big buckets along with that timing piece being the third that we can start to to work on and Again, if you're, if you're a strength coach and you've got a longer runway, you know you're going to have your athlete for six months, a year, multiple years. You can really pace yourself with how you, you layer on these sort of strategies to not you know, try to get all your wins all at once because that, that can be pretty overwhelming even for the most compliant athlete.
0: And just to be clear, so for those taking notes at home, so the sleeve of Oreos at that time, not good.
2: Yeah, this is the thing. If you're going to have that high simple sugar it's better to have it right after the game right i mean this is when muscles are are primed to be soaking up um simple carbohydrate and so if you're gonna have it that's a much better time than four hours later you know one or two in the morning or for the pro athletes on the plane because now we're you know it's, it's not going to be partitioned in the same way and, and we're going to impact sleep as well that should be the title of the
0: show eat
1: your oreos early
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs>
1: There you go. So, um, you know, two things I want to discuss based off of what you just said, um, before we go into our next question is, um, you had mentioned sleep and, and there are various studies, uh, basically saying that if teenagers get, you know, seven or less hours of sleep per night, you know, they're more apt to get, uh, you know, non-contact related musculoskeletal injuries, mm. um, you know, cognitive, their cognitive, their ability to basically process goes down the tubes. So we know that. Um, but another question I had is, and you mentioned, you know, the, the the sleep and the eating component. And I know you talked about not eating the bag of Oreos, but the other question I have is, um, have you experienced any situations where some of these athletes are not eating enough carbohydrates and maybe what's maybe what could be potentially happening is they're getting a form of low blood sugar and they're sleeping poorly because they have low blood sugar. Um, have you seen that that could be just as much of an issue as far as sleep quality? Because I know I've heard a few athletes talk about I think the term is nocturnal nocturnal hypoglycemia, people that low blood sugar at night and they can't sleep. Have you seen any, like, I'd love for you to to discuss that a little bit because I think we know that eating the bag of Oreos is not good, but I think a lot of people don't eat enough and then that impacts their sleep as well. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think I think the concept's a really good one. I think where we just want to watch is just trying not to describe it as kind of a hypoglycemia is because the ways people control blood sugars is very different from individual to individual. And the more we go down that hole, we'll start to get into a little bit of trouble in spots. And so a way that I would think about it would just be around that total fueling in a day. So if an athlete hasn't fueled, which is, you know, I think what you're alluding to here, if an athlete hasn't fueled appropriately in the day, they're going to have a lot of strong cravings later on in the day, right? Most of the time that'll be in conjunction with, with lower glycemia, but not always. Um, And so that's a problem because we're really back ending a lot of those calories they are coming closer to bedtime. We all, the data is pretty clear now, the later we eat, we don't tend to make the best food choices, right? It's more processed stuff. It's more sugars and and various things. And so that's definitely one to circle back on and make sure, Hey, in, in, in the day, what are we trying to achieve? And the challenge, the more elite the athlete is that the carbohydrates become more and more important because the output is so much greater than even a recreational elite, let's call it athlete, and much better than a, a recreational athlete. And so, and you see this even at the highest level in, in pro sport, where an athlete might be consuming, let's say, three grams per kilogram body weight per day of carbohydrate, or three and a half on a lot of days, and they need five or six grams per kilogram. Right. And I know this is uh, in the US. So you just take your pounds, divide by 2.2, 2, get you your kilograms, and then when you do that, when you start to have some daily ranges, it doesn't have to be a static target of 400 or 420, you can give a range. Um, That often opens the eyes of a lot of athletes because I've had a few athletes even just you know this morning going through their breakfast, their lunches, and a young athlete's got 40 grams of carbs in his breakfast. It's like if we're trying to achieve, uh. if we're trying to get to 4,000 calories by the end of the day, we, we need to do a lot better in that first meal. And so... I think with what you're suggesting here, yeah, if we don't fuel up enough throughout the day, then all of a sudden in the back end of the day, your brain's looking to recover all that, that energy deficit that it's in, and we're just not apt to make the best decisions when we're lying on the couch and looking around the, you know, the cupboards and the pantry for things. And so, yeah, it does create some, some problems, and uh, you don't sleep as well, you don't recover, and now we are on this kind of little bit of a roller coaster in terms of glucose control.
1: Awesome. No, that was something that I had a question about because I noticed, uh, I, I noticed that with a lot of, I work with a lot of professional fighters, uh, guys that are at the highest level and, and two, three, two and a half, three weeks before their fight, as they start to cut their weight, there's every, all their sleep scores are their heart rate variability inevitably just starts to tank and and i think part of it is obviously overtraining under fueling so i was just curious if you um sort of had any any more insight but you're right i mean it is at at, at the end of the day it's a it's a it's a balance right you got to get those calories and calories out but you also got to lose weight so it's a hard that's the hard part
2: well that's well it's interesting when you put the context around like a fighter because now we're trying to make weight and so this is where for periods um you know i had Reed real on my podcast who works ufc director of nutrition and you know, this is where in that week or two, and as you would know, coach, you know, we do start to pull carbohydrates out because we want to deplete glycogen and pull water out because we can really start to manipulate the weight, quote unquote, which we always think of as fat mass all the time, but most of our weights, muscle and water and glycogen. Um, So you can certainly, that way you can pull things down a lot and you see more dense forms of energy, like the egg yolks and the olive oils and things that actually don't weigh a lot when you hold them, which I always found interesting, you know, Being able to have a peek into the fight world of the flip the athlete makes when they realize like, hey, if I eat something that's really heavy, it's going to make me heavier. If I eat things that are really light, I don't gain as much weight. Now, that light thing can have a lot of calories or a lot of energy in it or it can have a little. And that's where you can actually apply some of that to team sports as well, because I think a lot of guys get scared of that as well. And team sports are not really appreciating where they can push more energy, more Kcal and some of the other meals where it's better to have just more volume. So you feel full, but you're not putting in as much energy.
1: Gotcha. Um, So switching gears a little bit. So in both training and nutrition, it's assumed that health and fitness are synonymous. Um, But there's, there's a paradox here uh, when we're trying to optimize health and we're trying to optimize performance. And then we have body composition to think about. Um, How can that be antithetical? How can that be sort of pushing up against one another?
2: It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we have this sort of heuristic of thinking in our minds of just super lean athlete, like the cover of a magazine, and then they're playing a sport and they're very healthy. And to some degree, you know, obviously this is possible. But when we think of really pushing the boundaries of performance, or if you're a bigger competitor or bodybuilder, you're really trying to get as lean as you want. Or if you're in the general public, your you know your goal is to perform well at work and at home and you know, you don't have to get as lean as you can, or you don't have to bench press 400 pounds because you've got to be able to get to work the next day. This is where we, you know, I visualize it as a a triangle, really. And so each one of those goals, performance, health, and body comp would be a different point on that triangle. And so as you move towards one, you're inevitably going to sacrifice a little bit of the other. And I think this is where you see for, you know, in team sports, there's certainly some athletes that are naturally, genetically really lean, but you don't have to be, seven or eight percent body fat to be a great ice hockey player um, or basketball player you know depending on the position of the sport if that body fat moves a couple of degrees up and that means that we're actually getting enough total fuel in during the day then you know the central nervous system is going to like that we're going to recover more effectively after we train after we play and so it is a It is a tricky one because there's certainly times when improving body composition is going to improve performance and you got to have that conversation and figure out what the athlete's doing. You know, are they achieving the protein targets that they need to? And that's typically where I start. You know, we use this uh, concept called the three T's, so total timing and type, right? What's the total protein that athlete should consume? Let's time that, right? Divide it throughout the day as evenly as we can. Then all of a sudden the timing piece, you know, it doesn't matter so much about the nutrient timing aspect of it. So you got your total, you got your timing, and then the type is eating lots of different variety. Right. And I use six different buckets when I talk to athletes. So we got our red meats, our poultry, our fish. I put seafood in a separate category, put eggs and dairy together, because some athletes don't do the dairy, and then plant-based proteins. So you got six buckets, and ideally we want to try to hit each bucket because something that we often don't realize um, is that as you increase protein intake, you increase micronutrient status, right? We're getting more vitamins, more minerals, more cofactors. And the more we spread that around to a variety of protein types, the the more, um, the more insurance policy we're getting, right? The more variety of those uh, micronutrients. And again, seafood's the one that's not the natural go-to for a lot of young athletes, especially, but if you can get into the oysters or the mussels or scallops or these types of things i mean they're really really big win uh in terms of protein omegas key minerals i mean it's it's really really supportive of health and performance
0: so let's continue on with with the body composition conversation and talking about like the most important impactful factors in muscle gain and fat loss and one of the things that that's a struggle i know as a coach is to explain to to clients that how much of that is is driven outside of the gym versus what we actually do, and how much of an impact we can make with movement and exercise, and the old expression of the abs being made in the kitchen. So kind of talk about the the interrelationship of of movement and exercise versus nutrition, and like what are the real what are the big rocks when it comes to body composition?
2: yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting question. Um, certainly, genetics plays a big role, right? Like if you want to be super lean, just pick the right parents. That's that's the first step. thing with being an Olympian, right? The best predictors to have one parent, and the next, the only better predictors to have both parents that are Olympians. And so, um, yeah. Well, what can we do about it? I mean, certainly nutrition plays a huge role. Um, if we come back even first to the physiology, I mean, all of human metabolism we can break down to to, to three components, right? Everything we consume, right? We get oxygen going in, CO two going out. We're making ATP you know, that's it really. And so as we're huffing and puffing and exhaling CO2, you know, those carbons that are coming out, that's, that's us losing body fat. And so I think that's a component when we talk about strength training, we certainly want to build muscle. And as we're trying to get leaner, that lifting helps to protect muscle. But I think sometimes we don't get enough of that conditioning aspect going on, whether it's aerobic fitness, whether it's just typical, if you want to take it down a notch in terms of, you know, daily movement and walking, I think those are components that play a big role in terms of fat mass loss that we're not always, they're not always easy to get at as well. If you have an athlete that's playing a team sport at a high level, you know if you can't make them run too many extra miles right? in terms of the pounding on the joints. But that conditioning piece is a really big part of it. And then as you alluded to, nutrition is playing a key role as well. Um, and so, again, I, I start with protein because from a nutrition standpoint, I'm trying to automate as much as I can right? I don't want my athletes having to think about nutrition all day long. We want to try to develop as many habits as we can. So it's just what they do. And so if we can set that protein initially and, and find the right meal frequency for them, then all of a sudden we've got fewer variables to deal with, right? Most people's fat intake kind of stays relatively the same. They'll typically underestimate how much fat they consume, right? People, when you ask them what they eat and you get them maybe to write out some of the fats they might have, there's typically going be you know 30 45 60 grams left out and at 9 kcal per gram you're talking about 3 to 500 calories right i mean that's that's a lot so we can do a little bit of adjusting there but the one that swings the pendulum that swings the most is obviously carbohydrate right we got low carb diets at a gram per pound or gram per kg and then if you're a tour de france rider you're you're consuming 15 to 18 grams per kilogram on some of these uh, mountain sessions which is just like bags of wine gums and haribos and drinks and gels and just you know the limiting factor is, is the ability to get it in the gut and out of the gut fast enough to be putting more in because the, the demand's so high so once you've set your protein once you've maybe reviewed the fats and tried to dial down a little bit you've got to really then figure out how you can start to adjust carbohydrate and for the athlete the key here and this is where the general public you know your connection to your girlfriend siblings, friends of of the low carb approach, you've got to keep the carbohydrates around the exercise so you can actually perform up to a certain level so you can create the adaptation. But then in other spots, you can, you know, reduce um, and really start to periodize your intake to be able to achieve a little bit of a
0: deficit that you need to get leaner. So could we theoretically uh, make, if we had a pie chart and said, okay, well, we know that a small percentage is that with the, that thermic effect of eating a certain amount that gets burned off just in the, in the digestion process. Sure. And then if you took the rest of the chart and said, I got to divide that amongst exercise, slash movement and and including, uh, non, you know, the, the neat stuff, the, the non-exercise activity, how much of that chart would be made of nutrition and how much of that chart would be made of exercise when it comes to my uh, attack on body composition.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when we look at that pie chart, resting metabolic rate makes up the biggest piece, right? Like 50% of all the calories we burn is just our metabolism. And if you're sedentary or overweight, you're going up to 65%, 70%, right? And so for the athlete, this is really important that they have a proper training plan that's you know, progressively overloaded and periodized and that they have a proper nutrition plan that doesn't have these big, you know, areas where we're really dropping caloric intake or excessive intake, because if you really restrict caloric intake and you really overtrain, metabolism starts to, to protect itself, right? It'll, it'll come down that RMR and you can see that by putting an athlete in the lab and, and measuring it. We see it uh, a lot of good data in female athletes, right? We start to see changes in T3 hormones that reflect that. And once we get the fueling back to where it needs to be and we get the training you know, the appropriate training stimulus, we can then start to get the the athlete leaner, but this is the client that looks like they're training really hard and they're eating next to nothing and they feel like they can't lose weight off and they, you know, they're run down, they're fatigued. They might be struggling with energy levels. They might be struggling with sleep. They might be having issues with lower type mood. Um, this is the weird part for them is they need to eat more, not less. And we've got to, you know, reestablish that metabolic, um, you know, RMR to a healthy level. And oftentimes that's for months and sometimes years of, of just insufficient intake. So that's a big piece. And that revolves, you know, I touched on their diet and exercise. So both of those are impacting that RMR. So you've got to get that piece right. Physical activities, you know, 20 to 30% of energy expenditure. So it's important. Um, I, again, I think for athletes, that conditioning piece is one where we can do some work that will help us from a recovery front. Right, so some of the less intense sessions that can keep us sweaty and keep us exhaling, right? Just getting that uh, the heart rate up enough so that we're breathing a little heavier, Um, and then walking is obviously important, maybe more important for the sedentary person, right? Athletes are still moving around quite a bit, so you've got to really think about context when you're adding a lot of extra (laughs) steps in the day for that individual. Right. I mean, we've got the tennis going on now, French Open. I mean, you wouldn't want to be logging 15,000 steps plus the four hours on the court. Um, so you've got to take that context into account. But uh, for me, I would, you know, diets, very important when it comes to body composition. I think there's still a really
0: important training component uh, as well. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So one more thing, Mike, I'm going to monopolize Dr. Bubs a little bit here. I've been waiting for this one for weeks. So. Um, when it comes to talk about a secondary effect of the training on, on the RMR specifically is one of the selling points always was, you know, we learned in school that, Hey, for every pound of lean body mass, you're burning 40 to 70 calories per day. So if we can add muscle, especially for the, whether it's the females or the individuals who are intimidated, Oh, I don't want to get too bulky to say, well, no, this is going to actually help you get leaner. But some of that's been brought into question. Correct. Those, those numbers yeah and i think this is where the you know the
2: biggest take-home when it comes to lifting uh we'll just talk in general here uh in terms of getting leaner is just protecting muscle mass right because that the stimulus the mechanical stimulus is going to help to maintain that muscle because as we're getting as we're losing body mass we're going to lose some muscle mass and so obviously if you're an athlete you don't want to be even the general public but more specifically performance related for the athlete you're trying to protect as much of that as you can now, you don't necessarily need to get these deficits that bodybuilders do, which is obviously why they need to consume you know, very high amounts, 2.7 grams per kilo, so up to 3 grams per kilo. You see in some of the British bodybuilders that are placing um, or the training frequency having to lift so many times in a day to be able to keep that stimulus on. But the benefit for the athlete is we need just a smaller deficit. Um, and so I think when we look at the training side, it's really to be able to protect muscle. And then from there, we then need to achieve just a, enough of a deficit you know, and typically we'll use, you know, that one to 2% body weight per week. We'll get athletes to weigh in a couple times, start to take an average um, and see how that trends over, you know, two weeks, four weeks. The bigger the runway that you have, the better, right? I think this is a good one for we're in off-season now, off-season training. Anytime body weight changes rapidly, you know, up or down, and we see significant changes Right? It's more than likely going to be muscle or, or glycogen or water that's moving around versus, um, you know, accumulations of fat mass or, or reductions. So, you know, it's it's a tough thing to do. But when you get with a good trainer, you know, year one, year two, year three, like let's stack the years on each other, not even just the months, especially when you work with younger athletes who are 16 and you know you've got till they're 22, you know, set the expectations for them. It's always tough even as a coach or nutritionist or you know, even if you're on the therapy side, you want to get in there and then make it make an impact, which is great. But it's definitely a, you know, you guys know it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so I think that's one where once the athlete kind of gets it or the coach buys in, it's great to see because you can then really start to not just see the profound changes, but how then straightforward it is for the athlete to follow, right? Like they're not walking around with a giant recipe list three years in. They're just, they've got the rhythm, they know what they eat. There's still little things that you're adjusting. Um, but just like with training, they've, you know, they, they know the the programs, their, their movement patterns are good. And you know, you can load them safely versus, you know, having to try to adopt completely new exercises or, 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 you know, uh, really divergent plans. So that would be my, my take.
1: Gotcha. So, Let's say you're working with a brand new, we'll just use a team for an example. Um, you're working with a brand new team and you want to give them the big rocks, right? You don't want to get uber, uber granular because you just can't right away, right? Yeah. I mean, down the road, yes, when you start working with people individually. So um, what are what are the big rocks that you focus on with a team? You come in, you're, you're working with a team. What are like the big three? I mean, maybe there's four or five, of course, but what would you say are the top three things that you need to nail down, Um from a nutritional standpoint when you're working with a team,
2: Yeah, I mean this is a great question because it comes down to you know typically when I'm working, I'm trying to work at two levels. So you've got the thirty thousand foot view, right? sort of the big rocks of what we're trying to achieve, and then you've got the sort of the more granular acute level. Um, and the reality of being on the ground is you have to deal with a lot of the acute stuff as it comes up if guys get injured or concussions or this and that. So you're doing some of these things. but really the the big rocks, that thirty thousand feet is gonna set that foundation or that culture that really helps to, you know, make things stick, if you will, with the athletes going forward. So the first thing for me is really trying to understand the sport, right? Like what are these guys and gals doing, right? What energy systems are they having to use in their sport? Um, You know, what, what body composition, is there an advantage to be at a certain body composition really spending some time there? Because I think, the challenge, even for a lot of strength coaches, is we, especially if you're working in that environment and it's hectic, it's busy, there's stuff coming at you every day, you don't have a lot of time to zoom out to 30,000 feet to really map things out. But if we can start with that physiology, all of a sudden, if we're adopting a certain strategy of, let's say, adding fats at a certain point or or removing carbs or adding carbs at a certain point, you can always come back to that physiology and say, wait a minute, what type of sport is this? Is it really anaerobic? Is it really glycolytic? okay, well, the guys or the gals are going to need X versus Y. What are we giving them at halftime or right before the game or right after the game? Um, so if we can spend time on that first one to really understand, the great thing is in the last decade, I mean, we've got a lot more research on, on all different sports in terms of what's what's required. Um, so that's the first piece. The second piece always feels like for athletes that they they've done it already and they know it, and this comes back to this meal frequency and protein. Um, so for me, I'm trying to really set those as best I can, right? Cause if you, if you look over the course of a month, if an athlete's missing a single meal and anytime you eat a, anything, we call it a meal, right? So even if it's a snack, you start to add those up over a week, two weeks, four weeks. That's a lot of calories and a lot of energy, a lot of protein, carbohydrate that we're missing just from one missing one, right? If we miss two, it starts to increase. And so that's one that we try to get athletes really used to the patterns, right? athletes are creatures of habit, let's start to build a habit where it feels kind of weird if they don't have that snack at 3 p.m. or they're not having that, you know, plain yogurt with some honey or berries or whatever in the, in the evening before bed. And when you do that, you'll often uncover the fact that they're not eating as many meals as you think, or in some of those meals, there's not as much protein as you'd like to get. You're not hitting that sort of minimum dose of 20 grams and not really maximizing that dose of the bigger athletes at 40 grams. Because then after that, I mean, the third big rock is really then just looking at what the individual athlete needs. And then so then that gets into the discussion around carbohydrates and fats. It gets into the discussion around micronutrition. You know, it gets into the discussion around uh, timing, around pregame, during game, postgame. And and where, you know, where's the, because you mentioned, obviously, we don't have a lot of time. Where's the biggest area of impact to start with? know and it's going to be different for each player and if we could start there make a little bit of a change um then we tend to get some good buy-in with with staff and athletes but you know it's as you guys know it's not always easy if if an athlete's been doing things a certain way or a coach has been doing things a certain way um you know it takes time
0: now and the prioritization of things um, usually a lot of, a lot of, uh, people in general, not just athletes, they skip over those big rocks and they go right to the supplements. And so let's yeah, talk supplements a little bit. And sure. So every day you got new supplements coming to the market with lots of promises. So how does someone do their diligence and kind of know number one, most importantly, is this safe and to know if it actually is going to work? So, so like, what's the the vetting process that the average person can, can go and do.
2: Yeah, I mean if you're playing a you know a, a sport at a elite level,
0: then you want to be looking
2: for you know nsF certifications or informed for sport, which is the more common one used in the u k and Europe um, the the informed for sport will test for all the banned substances even more actually than the nsF the nsF just goes a little step further and it actually identifies that everything in that package is actually what it says it is um now, you have a lot of brands, sort of what we used to call physicians line brands, like your Thorns and Douglas Labs and companies like that, Designs for Health, that have, you know, thankfully, i have had a chance to, to visit a lot of these places and also visit some of your sort of mom and pop supplement places. And it's it's, it's night and day, the difference of how they're set up um, in terms of all the safety procedures and everything else. And so if you look for those Informed Sport NSF, you're going to be in a good spot. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, in terms of what works, there's not that many supplements that work. So it's a kind of a short list. And then, you know, you can, (laughs) from there, you can, you know, if you're doing any kind of intakes or lab tests, there might be some insufficiencies or deficiencies you may want to sort of correct, but, uh, it's not the longest list.
0: Well, just just despite what
2: you say, there is a plethora of options and there's a
0: lot of promises and everything else. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a, you know, a lot of square footage in vitamin shop, but uh, (laughs) there's definitely uh, a lot of square footage. (laughs) But uh, so, so, let's talk about that list. In the book, you mentioned your top five. So, if you want to kind of share that and kind of how you landed on those five,
2: yeah, I mean, I think the one of the first ones is is protein, and it's it's more portable nutrition than it is even a supplement, right? it's 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 convenience. It would be great if we could all cook our food from scratch all day long, six meals a day. I mean, that's people always ask, what would you do if you if you won the lottery? I mean, one of the first things I would get would be my own chef. And then somebody to maybe clean the dishes after that. But that's, that'd be top priority because it's, uh, it's great, right? To be able to have that, which some athletes do. But, um, uh, so protein's number one, right? Because it's convenient. We need to achieve those three T's and it's going to help us, even something like a whey protein, right? Whey's got, it contains glutathione, which is a major antioxidant in the body, both that water soluble, has immunoglobulins, which are, uh, which will help to support the immune system and then, you know, help to reduce infections. So it it is food in a tub, so to speak. So that's a great place to start. The next one for me would be around the omegas. And again, if if we could get them all from food would be great. Um, the more you play contact sports, the more there's head trauma involved. We do need to get some decent dosages up. And so you know your omega 3s, EPA and DHA, if you're plant-based, you can obviously get it where the fish get it, which is the algae. So you can get a you know an algae-based DHA form as well. And really important, you know, for for all of us, but if you, have, if, again, if you work with younger athletes in high school, grade school, college, I mean, you're getting some benefits in terms of, you know, focus and concentration as well. And so that's a pretty nice place to start because it's not just supporting the athlete performance, but, you know, something that's one of my core principles, which is supporting athlete health, right? If we can keep the athlete as healthy as we can, they're going to be able to best express their potential and perform best and and recover best and those types of things so those would be definitely in in the top the top few there creatine is obviously a a big one because no matter how much herring you eat and if you live in sweden you still you still can't supersaturate tissues like you can with a supplement so that's probably the best definition of taking a supplement because the creatine will do will provide you with a level of creatine that you simply cannot get from eating food alone um, it's great to see all the research coming out around kids and benefits. It's great to see the research coming out around sixty-five, seventy-plus in terms of cognitive function um, is tremendous. I think we just need now to maybe work on the, you know, the NCAA and then get some changes in terms of what we can provide athletes. Because, you know, in terms of even recovery and all these types of things, it's it's huge. It's it's not just a, on that ergogenic side. Those would be three great ones to start with.
1: So you've been recently working uh, in the world of longevity. Um, what are you seeing from that end? And uh, also share uh, a little bit about your peak 40 program as well.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it's been really interesting over the last 25 years to, you know, when I was playing basketball in high school, I was, I had a period where I was getting sick quite a bit and you know, nutrition actually was playing a big role. My lack of decent nutrition and changing that, I, you know, I felt better. And I thought, geez, this is interesting stuff. This is, again, going back late 90s. Um, and it's just amazing now how we just, in medicine, the focus on nutrition to reverse and prevent type 2 diabetes, the focus now on cardiovascular fitness, even when we look at various forms of cancers, which would have been unthinkable before to put somebody, a lung cancer patient on an aerobic training protocol. Um, I was recently at... Uh, the International Society of Exercise and Immunology, where all these expert immunologists get together and they have uh, an exercise side where they're literally putting those types of cancer patients on exercise programs and they're seeing significantly increased survival times. And so it has a huge impact. And I think the most motivating thing, and I, the reason why I wrote Peak 40, which is basically a set of heuristics or simple rules, right? I have a lot of coaches and staff and friends who are in, in midlife, let's call it, right? mid thirties, forties plus, busy life, kids at home, busy work, and you don't have time to, to food prep and do all these things. So how do we have a set of simple rules to help, you know, get sort of 80% of the way home. And so, you know, that's why I, I wrote Peak 40. And it's, it is interesting on the exercise side, when you look at even aerobic fitness, even just being average, you get a lot of benefits on longevity compared to somebody who's below average, and a lot more than the person who is very low in terms of their aerobic fitness. So you don't have to go out there and be an elite marathon runner to get these benefits. You just have to go from really struggling to catch the bus to be able to maintain a decent pace for 20 minutes, and you're going to get a huge benefit. And so that can be motivating to the busy person because, hey, a couple sessions a week can even combine your resistance work within that. Like You can do a lot in 20 to 30 minutes a couple times a week to really... And of course, you can build off of that if you want to start to maximize things. But you know, as you guys know, if it's it's minimum effective dose is a pretty good place to start when you're not as fit as you once were or would like to be, or or eating as well, right?
0: Yeah. No. You you the you're talking to uh to two guys who qualify for your program and I you know uh I qualify <laughs> I, as well, I hear it. You know, so uh with that, yeah, I always I always joke that you know you've always heard as, as you're coming up, especially if you were lifting in the gym. Ah, just you know, the old guy in the gym was I'll oh, wait till you turn 30 or wait till you turn 40. And it's like, oh well, I just hit 50 and hasn't hit yet, you know. So yeah. I think it it speaks more to the consistency, like you're saying, than it is. That I'm doing, maxing what I used to max, or or doing what I used to do, is just just being consistent and staying the course, um, has got to yeah. be just as much of it than anything else. It's basically how you train smarter when you're get to be in your mid 30s and 40s, right? <laughs> well, and, and I also joke with with my younger athletes. I said you know, they'll, you know, talk about me working out. And I said, here's the biggest difference. I'm still somewhere in the ballpark, strength wise and and fitness wise. I used to be, here's the difference between you in your twenties and and me in my early fifties is that if you get abs, someone may actually care. I walk in my house, (laughs) no one gives a shit. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's, you know, what doesn't matter. Go cut the grass. Um, And the IPA tastes
2: great on Friday. So the cost benefit there, it's the easy decision.
0: Absolutely. So, that's so it. speaking. So speaking of, you're gonna, you're just warned Mike's heart. Mike's a big beer guy. So let's let's talk about the uh, one thing that that wasn't sure if we're gonna have time for uh, that you mentioned in peak. That that's kind of interesting. That a lot, a lot of people talk about is uh, the significance and impact of prebiotic foods and micronutrients on health and performance.
2: Yeah, I mean prebiotics is effectively the stuff that our gut bacteria eat, and supplementing with a probiotic can have a lot of benefit, particularly if you're in the winter months when we're trying to reduce severity and duration of colds and flus, but it's not kind of repopulating the gut, right? We had this idea previously that we're going to take this supplement that's going to help to change the actual diversity of the microbiome, but all the gut bacteria, it has a transient effect, but once you stop taking it, that effect starts to go away. And so a lot of this, the research has moved towards prebiotics of what can we start to what foods do these bacteria feed off of that we can, you know, if you use kind of a garden analogy, you can grow the right plants so that you keep the weeds at bay. And, and obviously the processed foods and everything else that, that promotes all the, the quote unquote bad gut bacteria. Um, a lot of these indigestible fibers are, are really uh, helpful for that. A lot of the whole foods that we eat, right. And so there's some really great uh, Dr. Miguel Mateus uh, over in the UK, it's a pretty big challenge called the 50 food challenge. I modify that with younger athletes. You can do the 10 food challenge or the 20 food challenge. And it's just to challenge them to eat a variety of different foods because the more different stuff we can put on the plate, and it comes back a little bit to the heuristic around color of the rainbow, but you know that's related to polyphenols and um, antioxidants, but that will allow you a, a, more, um, a, a better ability to be able to support that healthy gut um, diversity, which is Really, the only thing we can hang our hat out, when we, as much as we know about the microbiome, there's, there's still far more that we don't know. And the only thing that researchers will really say is that that diversity is really key. And the research they've done in athletes is cool because the rugby players, the protein intake, and the, again, the aerobic fitness was strongly related to more gut diversity. So back to that idea of being conditioned and fit, that's going to play a big role um, in promoting a more healthy gut. And for any of the coaches listening in who are struggling with, say, weight gain or heartburn or a lot of this GI stuff. Not just with the food part. We got to get you a little fitter as well. That has a big impact on, on everything moving a little better and, and reducing symptoms.
0: Awesome. So so Mike, I'm going to flag myself here because I i would monopolize the entire day with Dr. Bubs. So I'm going to start to reel it in. And uh, but before we do, I want to find out, Mark, what, what are some of the things that you're working on now? What's new and exciting you got coming up for 2023 and beyond?
2: Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always fun to always fun to chat. Um, We've got a uh, football performance nutrition summit. So if you're working in the football space and obviously a lot of crossover to other sports uh, coming up in mid June. So I'm not sure when this is going out, but we'll have a great summit. We've got 14 speakers, experts in different domains uh, from the NFL and CAA. So, you know, definitely it's a free event. So you can register and, and check us out there. And then it'll be a busy summer, Canada basketball. We're off to the world cup. So we, We've got our fingers crossed and uh on, on putting in a good performance and qualifying for the Olympics.
0: Well, best of luck with that. And, and we'll definitely put the links up for, for all that stuff. And want to thank you for, for your time and your expertise. And uh, this has been fun. And more importantly, want to thank you, the listener, for, for tuning in. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.PrinciplesOfProgramDesign.com and follow us on all the social media channels where we post new content every day save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code principles podcast 10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principles of program or or messages on social media. Thank you again for your support.